the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. 262 CP, Bayonet Point, WTBN, Pinellas Park. Portions of this hour have been pre recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Now, as I said, they needed instruction about how to live under Christ's rule in his kingdom. In other words, they needed to know about kingdom living, present day kingdom living. And that is precisely what the sermon is about. You want to know if you want to write this down. The theme of the Sermon on the Mount is kingdom living, how to live as a citizen of Christ's kingdom in contrast to those outside of his kingdom. A follower of the Lord Jesus Christ will be different. We are different because we do what he wants us to do. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made it very clear what his standards are. They are so high that we need God's Spirit in us to even approach them. Hello and welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Pastor Steve will continue his introductory message today about the greatest sermon ever given, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, let's listen as he continues to lay the groundwork for this series of lessons about this famous sermon. So this morning, in order to help us get a handle on the greatest sermon that's ever been given, I want, by way of introduction, to give you an overview of this magnificent Sermon on the Mount. And the way I want to do this is by asking one key question that I believe its answer opens the door, unlocks the door to understand uh, how to correctly interpret this sermon. Now, once you know the meaning of the sermon, then you can see how Jesus developed this sermon with his three essential points. So the key question, if you're taking notes, and I would encourage you to write this down, the key question that unlocks the meaning of the Sermon on the Mount is what is the main theme of this sermon? What is the central thought around which everything else is built? That's That's how a sermon operates. So to begin with, to answer that question, we first need to discover to whom did Jesus uh, give this sermon? In other words, what, what's the audience? Who is the audience? To whom was the sermon preached? The answer is found in Matthew 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So the first thing that Matthew tells us is that Jesus went up to a mountain when he saw a large crowd of people. So a reasonable question to ask is, who were these people, and why did Jesus go up on a mountain when he saw them? Well, I want to take you back to chapter 4, beginning at verse 23, to answer who these people were, who the crowd was. Matthew 4, beginning at verse 23, Jesus was going throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And news about him spread throughout all Syria, that would be to the north of Israel. And they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering from various diseases and pains and demoniacs and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And notice this, large crowds 
followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, the ten cities near Galilee, and Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So we're told that at this point in our Lord's Galilean ministry, the beginning of his Galilean ministry, large crowds of people followed him. Now, something I probably haven't emphasized enough, but I want to I want to say it today as clearly as I can, is that Matthew does not always present his material in chronological order. Some some material is, but not all of it. Much of it is is topical, and, and we can fit it all together when we look at a harmony of the gospel. And, and when you can harmonize the gospel accounts, we, we realize that Matthew is not always chronological. And that helps us to know this at this point, because by the time Jesus gave the sermon on the mount, we know that he had healed many people. This was not just the beginning of his ministry. He had healed many people, and as a result, he was immensely popular, immensely popular. So when people learn that this amazing teacher with healing power was in their area, they they just naturally sought him out, and they naturally followed him. Those are the people who were there. That's the crowd. They're curiosity seekers. They're people who perhaps have been healed by him who or who wanted healing or who wanted a miracle. And we're told that seeing this large crowd of people, Jesus now walks up a mountain. Now, I don't want you to, when, when you hear of a mountain, I don't want you to get the impression that he's climbing the Rockies or anything like that. There's nothing like that in, in Israel. Uh, there's one major tall mountain that's nowhere near this area of Galilee, and that's Mount Hermon. But this is really a sloping hill. If you've ever been to Israel, you can picture it in your mind, the place that uh, most would say, and probably right, is the uh, the Mount of Beatitudes, it's called. It was a sloping hill, and it's on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. There are many hills there. We're not exactly sure the, the precise spot, but it was in that general area. And you could really rightfully call this the Sermon on the Hill. That that would be a more accurate uh, statement. It is not a, a mountain in which Jesus is, you know, climbing up this, this enormous uh, mountain range. So he does this in order to address the people, the sloping hills with, with grass. They're a very pretty spot. And I remember Jesus did not have access to a public address system. He didn't have access to an acoustical amphitheater. So he, what he's doing is he's using the natural setting of a mountainside with a sloping area to teach the people who would be below him. And there were levels. It would it just gradually sloped down. But I want you to notice something that's very important, very important. The large crowds of people were not the only ones present that day to hear this sermon. We're told this. Matthew tells us that after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, this is the first time that we have seen this word disciple used by Matthew. It's certainly not the last time. In fact, he'll close his gospel accounts by telling us that our commission is to go and make what? Disciples. This is the first time he mentions it. What is a disciple? Well, he's using it here essentially to mean a follower of Jesus. The word literally means a learner, a pupil, a a student. So not only do we have a large crowd of people in general, curious people, people interested in hearing more about what he had to say, but you have his own disciples there, uh, those who would be believers, those who had made a commitment to learn from him and to follow him. Here's how one Bible teacher explained the the scene. And I want you to imagine it. He said, as Jesus made his way up the mountainside, many people followed him. 
When he sat down, his inner circle of followers, the disciples, would have settled closest to him. Now, let me stop for a moment and add that we know from Mark's gospel that he had just appointed 12 to be his apostles, his special messengers. So they're the ones probably closest to him. Then the writer goes on to say others, including some of those who had been struck by his earlier teaching, would have sat as near as possible. Beyond them, other people would have spilled out over the mountainside. So what you probably have are the 12 apostles closest to him. And then you have others who would be disciples, but were not chosen to be the 12 who were on the outer part. And then you had spilling down the the hillside, maybe even going as far as the Sea of Galilee, which I'm telling you, it's right on the sea. Uh, you you would have had a large number of people. However, regardless of where people were sitting in relation to Jesus, everybody heard him. Everybody heard him. We know that because at the end of this sermon, we read that the crowd was astonished when they heard his teaching. Chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. And why were they so amazed? Because it says in verse 29, he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Every rabbi spoke by quoting a bunch of people. Well, Rabbi Hillel says this, Rabbi Gamaliel says this, Rabbi Shammai says this. Jesus said, you've heard the rabbi say this, but I tell you, nobody spoke like that. Nobody said, I'm the authority. They all use the authority of, of rabbis. Jesus said, I'm the authority. And the people were amazed. My point is, is that they all heard him, whether they were right next to him or not. Now, in light of all these people before him, Matthew tells us that Jesus did something that may not seem too important to you, but it was a gesture that everybody there got and understood in that culture. The Bible says that he sat down. He sat down. Now that, as I said, may be uh, something that you would, and I would easily overlook But before he taught anyone, we're told Jesus sat down. Why is that important? In our contemporary culture, when a teacher sits down, it usually indicates an informal setting, perhaps a home Bible study, maybe a devotional at a a picnic, perhaps something done in a a small group Bible study or, or a house church or something like that. But in our Lord's day, it was just the opposite. When a rabbi sat down, he was signaling to the people that they better listen to him because he meant business. This was official teaching. This was formal teaching. In other words, it sitting down meant it carried the weight of authoritative teaching. Now that's why Jesus said, and all the Jewish people understood this, but we're removed from that culture, so we need to explain this. Matthew 23, 2, Jesus said, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. They sit in the seat of Moses. Well, what did that mean? Well, to sit in Moses' seat meant that they had, these Pharisees, they had authority to formally and officially instruct the people in the law of God. That's exactly what it meant. Even today, we tend to speak like that. We tend to speak of a professor holding a chair in a university as a way of saying that he has an honored position to speak with authority on his subject. That's the chair. In fact, let me take it a step further. When the Roman Catholic Pope makes an official authoritative announcement, he is said to be speaking ex cathedra, which literally means out or from the chair. He's speaking out of the chair. That's just an understood expression. And, and that's, how, that's how Matthew is using this. He sat down. It means you better listen. The rabbi is speaking. 
So we read that when Jesus sat down, what that means, let me just reiterate, it means that he was assuming the posture of a rabbi and about to give an authoritative sermon. But to whom did he specifically address this sermon? Well, notice verse 2 of Matthew 5. He opened his mouth and began teaching them, saying, question is, who would be the them? Now, since the last group mentioned by Matthew before this statement are the disciples, it does seem reasonable to believe that what Matthew means is that the them that he taught is a reference to his disciples and not the general crowd. They were there, but it was not the general crowd. In other words, the thought is his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He began to teach the disciples. This, I might add, is also the way that Luke presents the same material. We would assume that it's the same sermon in Luke chapter 6, verse 20. He says, and turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say. So Luke specifically tells us he looked at his disciples and he taught them. So note this very carefully. This will, this will help to unlock the door. The Sermon on the Mount is primarily a sermon addressed to Christ's followers, not unbelievers. It is not primarily an evangelistic sermon. It is addressed to believers, those who in response to his preaching had already repented because the king had arrived and now they needed training in how to live as subjects of his kingdom. The message had been by John the Baptist and by Jesus himself, repent for the kingdom is at hand and I'm the king, I'm showing up. These people had repented. Now, how do they live as citizens in his kingdom? Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus ignored the crowd or had no evangelistic concern for them because at the end of the sermon, he does make an evangelistic appeal to the people. In chapter 7, verse 13, he speaks about the broad way and the narrow way, and he, he invites them to enter through the narrow gate. He is that narrow gate. So it doesn't mean that he neglected the crowds. He was very much aware that the, that the crowd was there, but his, his teaching was primarily directed towards the disciples. Now, there would be an evangelistic uh, uh, flavor to this just by virtue of the fact that Jesus spoke about the law of God. They would have been convicted of how far they had fallen from the law. But but I want you to know this is a, a sermon in which Jesus targeted his disciples, not unbelievers, those who had already repented and accepted him as their king. Now, as I said, they needed instruction about how to live under Christ's rule in his kingdom. In other words, they needed to know about kingdom living. Present-day kingdom living. And that is precisely what the sermon is about. You want to know if you want to write this down, the theme of the sermon, very briefly is this. The theme of the Sermon on the Mount is kingdom living. How to live as a citizen of Christ's kingdom in contrast to those outside of his kingdom, regardless of who they might be. They might be religious leaders who Jesus called hypocrites. Don't live like them. They might be outright pagans. Jesus called the Gentiles. Don't live like them. You see, that's why we read such statements in the sermon that calls us to be different from the religious hypocrites and the secular heathen. If you will, look at chapter 6, verse 5. And I know there's a lot to take in, but we're going to take our time. We're going to go through this, but this is a broad overview. Chapter 6, verse 5. Jesus said, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. He meant the, the Jewish religious hypocrites. 
For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say that they have their reward in heaven. What he was saying is they, they want to show off. They want everybody to think they're spiritual and godly. And so they make sure that they pray these loud, long prayers so that everybody hears them. And Jesus said, you know what? They did it to impress people. That's their reward. They got it. People were impressed. But there's no reward from the Father for that. So he says, don't be like them. But then notice two verses down in verse seven, he says, and when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. So now it's not the religious hypocrites. Now it's the pagans, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. They just think if they go on and on and on, they're going to wear out their deity. He'll just give it to them because he'll get bored with them. All the minutia, the details thrown at them. So Jesus said, don't be like them. Don't be like them. See, the Sermon on the Mount calls us as those who claim to be followers of the king to live according to the righteous standards of his kingdom. What are those righteous standards? It's the content found in the Sermon on the Mount. The content of the Sermon on the Mount are the righteous standards of the kingdom. He calls us to live by those righteous standards, not our world's evil standards. That, that's the heart of this whole message. And that's why our Lord continually draws our attention to the differences between his followers and others. And once again, I call upon John Stott to make a statement to explain this. Stott says this, there is no single paragraph in the Sermon on the Mount, in which this contrast between Christian and non-Christian standards is not drawn. It is the underlying and uniting theme of the sermon. Everything else is a variation of it. Sometimes it is the Gentiles or pagan nations with whom Jesus contrasts his followers. Thus, pagans love and salute each other, but Christians are to love their enemies. Pagans pray after a fashion, heaping up empty phrases, but Christians are to pray with humble thoughtfulness of children to their father in heaven. Pagans are preoccupied with their own material necessities, but Christians are to seek first God's rule and righteousness. So folks, let me, let me put it this way. I'm just approaching it from a number of various angles to help our understanding. Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching a lifestyle that is counter culture to the world that we live in. It's a radical sermon. It's radical teaching. It will radically change your life. He commands us to take very seriously our commitment to him as king. This is really, you know, this is really a summation of of the whole lordship controversy. If if Christ, you've come to Christ as his follower, Jesus doesn't say you have to wait a number of years. You know me as savior. Now you need to know me as Lord. It's just, no, there's none of that dichotomy. It's follow him. You you say that you believe in him as king and Messiah. Live that way. You cannot live by society standards, but you can live by kingdom standards. That's why in many ways, verse 33 of chapter six is, is a highlight of the whole sermon. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and everything you need will be given to you. That, that's That's what it's about. This is precisely, by the way, why the term kingdom plays such a prominent role in this sermon. Kingdom means a realm, a a sphere coming under the king. There are statements in this sermon in which Jesus refers, and note this, this is important, to God's kingdom as a present reality, not something in the future, but a present reality. He does that, by the way, in chapter 5, verse 3, when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not it will be, it is. Chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted 
for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then the verse that I just quoted, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The kingdom is here and his righteousness is here. Very important. So a major thrust of the Sermon on the Mount is that the reason his disciples are to be different and distinct than those around them is because we as his followers have already entered into the kingdom. We are already followers of the king, and as such, we belong to his kingdom, and therefore we need to live according to kingdom principles. Therefore, to put it very succinctly, the Sermon on the Mount is a message about kingdom living here and now. But having said that, not everybody sees it that way. Not everybody does. In fact, many students of Scripture believe that most of the Sermon on the Mount is irrelevant for us today because they say that it pertains entirely to Israel, the Jewish people, for a future kingdom age. In fact, years ago, a woman in our church said, I'd like to talk to you about something. What she wanted to talk to me about, what troubled her, is that our uh, Thursday morning ladies' Bible study was teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and they were teaching that this is these are truths for the church age, not for a future messianic kingdom, and, and she, didn't, she didn't agree with that. Now, where did she come up with that? That view, well, that's one of the 36 interpretations. But she had been taught by certain popular Bible teachers, uh, dispensational teachers. Dispensational teacher means someone who makes a distinction, rightly so, between Israel and the church. But these teachers tended to go overboard in their distinctions. The the most well-known of those teachers is the famous C.I. Schofield of the Schofield Study Bible. Dr. Schofield believed, as, as do many other dispensational prominent Bible teachers, that that the Sermon on the Mount is not for church-age believers. They believe that this sermon is exclusively for the Jewish people in a coming future age. In other words, they say that this is a sermon in which Jesus was telling the Jewish people not how to live now, but how they should live in the coming millennial kingdom when Christ will literally and physically reign on the earth. And And the reason they arrive at this interpretation is because they view the whole setting as this, that Jesus came preaching repentance to the nation of Israel. And when she would repent nationally, he would establish his kingdom. I, I think that's right. I think that's that's correct. But they say, since she did not, since she did not nationally repent, he did not establish his physical kingdom on earth. So far, I'm with them. I think that's right. So they say, when he returns, after Israel repents, he will then set up his millennial kingdom. I'm there too. I think that's right. And they say, the principles he lays down in the Sermon on the Mount will then come into effect for the Jewish people to live by. That's where I'm not there. I'm not there because I think that's wrong. Now, I believe that we need to make a distinction between Israel and the church. I think that's the only way to consistently interpret the Bible in a literal, normal language approach. Otherwise, you have to spiritualize uh, so many things. And I believe that that there is a coming future, literal, physical kingdom on earth after Israel repents during the tribulation period, and Jesus comes and will reign out of literal, physical Jerusalem. Of course, it'll be changed then, but I, I believe the Bible teaches that. And I believe Jesus indicated the future aspect of that kingdom in Matthew 6, verse 10, when he taught us what many call the Lord's Prayer, verse 10, your kingdom come. We're to pray for that. Your kingdom come, which tells us that that not all aspects of the kingdom has come. 
So what we, what we see from this, there is a present aspect. Wherever the king reigns, if he reigns in your heart, the kingdom has come. But there is a future aspect of the kingdom. And those who, who believe this interpretation I was telling you don't see that, that present aspect. They see only the future aspect. But I tell you, to say that the Sermon on the Mount is reserved for Jewish believers of a distant age, I think it's wrong, and it fails to take into account the spiritual aspect of the kingdom today. Even the Apostle Paul spoke of this very clearly in Colossians 1.13. Paul said, for he has rescued us from the domain of darkness, meaning God has done that, and he has transferred us, to note this, to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We're now in the kingdom. That's what Paul said, and that's, that's what Jesus was saying. There's a kingdom aspect right now, right now. Besides what Pastor Steve just told us, there are plenty of statements within the Sermon on the Mount that make it abundantly clear that Jesus was not talking about the millennial kingdom. We will consider some of those statements on the next Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve Kreloff is our teacher, These Bible classes of the air are extensions of his expository preaching ministry, and they are produced by Verse by Verse Ministries. We are a faith ministry supported by caring listeners like you. To learn more about us, please visit our website, versebyverseradio.org. If you would like a CD or a cassette with this entire message, you can order it by calling us at 727-239-0306. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.